Hi and welcome to the Psyche Podcast where we discuss all things mindset, mental well-being and living your best life. I'm your host Hannah and I'm a mindset and mental well-being coach and founder of Psyche Coaching. Welcome and we hope you enjoy the show. Hi everyone and welcome back and I'm recording this for a second time because the first one was really weird. It was like slowed down and I thought I'd put the wrong audio file in. Um, because it didn't sound like me, it's super weird. Uh, So I thought I'd re-record it and hopefully this comes out okay. Uh, So welcome back, Uh, happy Wednesday. I hope you enjoyed the roundup episode on Monday and I'm not going to talk for too long uh, because this is such a fab conversation with William Graper about style, about uh, values, about so much great stuff. So we're just going to dive straight in. Hi everyone and welcome back and I'm really excited to welcome this week's guest William to the podcast. So if you could introduce yourself to us William and tell us a little bit about you and I'm calling you William if you would rather that we call you something else throughout let me know that as well but welcome and tell us about you. No William's great. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm William Graper and I've been a fashion stylist for the last 15 years working in New York and Los Angeles with celebrities and magazines like Harper's Bazaar, Katy Perry. And at some point I realized I was loving the personal connection with people the most out of my job and I wasn't getting that as readily as I wanted to. So I was I did a lot of soul searching and decided to go back to school and um, getting my master's in psychology to become a psychologist. And I, I really want to help people style their life in a more meaningful and lasting way. Yeah, I love that idea of, of styling, styling our lives. And, and I guess it has that sort of sense of, I don't know, uh, choosing or having some sort of sense of control and designing, I guess, your life, the, the, the way that works for you rather than um, I guess like sleepwalking through life, which I think is something that a lot of us tend to do sometimes. Mm -hmm. I think I've also found in my own experience with therapy and with um, mental health that it's difficult to deep dive into your stuff. And most people have that trepidation and there is a stigma around getting help for your mental health and taking care of your, your head. And what I would really like to do is make it cool to take care of your head, you know? So the, in the same way we post our personal trainers online, why are we not being a little louder about the work we do on our inner selves? And we see a lot of wellness Instagrams and shows and things like that, but the way the mental health care system is set up right now, I mean, in the United States anyway, is there is so many, there are so many entities that keep you from talking about mental health and psychology because they, they want to keep it like tightly professionally bound. So we often hear it called wellness and we don't hear it called what it actually is, which is mental health. Um, Because in order to use words like mental health or psychology, you have to actually be a licensed psychologist or the board and, you know, people will come after you. So that's why we see so many coaches. And that was news to me when I set out to get my degree because I was sure I wanted to become a licensed psychologist. And what I'm realizing is that some of the ways in which people need help is are not not sitting in a room on a couch across from a therapist. And so how do we make mental health care approachable and how do we meet people where they are? That's what I'm really interested in. Yeah, I, I love that idea of meeting people where, where they are because I, it's it's something that I, I've said before on here. Mm. I, I stole it actually someone else and said it. But it's so true, isn't it? That, you know, I think we always want to rush ahead, but we need to meet ourselves where we are. And when we're working with people, we need to meet them where they are. And I think um, you said about that, that kind of professional accreditation and those bodies. And I think there's value in that in the sense of then you know that the person you're working with has the skills to be able to support you. But there are those restrictions in the particular way that they work, which, as you said, might not necessarily be mm-hmm. the, the way that, that works. For, for an individual. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think now more than ever, I crave authority figures. I feel in the United States anyway, with our current political system, um, I crave the truth. <laughs> I crave 
someone telling me what's really going on from a scientific place or from just a place of really knowing. And also as a culture, we're so inundated with experts via social media and we can't really decipher what's real and what's not. And the marketing machine allows us to have something presented to us in a way that seems really authoritative and real. And then you dive down into it and it's not. So that is part of the reason why I value education and why I value going and getting a degree and why I value getting licensed on the other side of the coin, because we do need people like doctors and psychologists that we can look to that are going to tell us the truth and have our best interest at heart. And, um, I certainly crave that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm, I'm very much a wanting the science and yeah, that's very much where, where I'm coming from mm-hmm. as well. So yeah, moving from from being a stylist, which I I don't know, I would imagine maybe is a very glamorous role, but maybe maybe it's not. Maybe that is again just what we kind of think from the outside. So one, was it <laughs> was it really glamorous? And and was there a particular thing that led to you making this transition or was it just like an accumulation of of uh, over time? You know, I think you have to be pretty sick to become a stylist. <laughs> Um, it is, it's probably like trying to become an actor or trying to become, um, get a book published or I don't know, all of the most competitive industries in the world require a certain level of delusion and a certain level of, um, cutthroat attitude and a certain level of, um, sacrifice for your personal life to create something in your professional life. And I think we can all relate to that, whether you're a mother, whether you're, it doesn't matter what kind of job, we can relate to that personal sacrifice. But there's something about fashion where the appeal is so glamorous. And you, you know, I, as a kid was just obsessed with fantasy and it was really my way of checking out and my way of coping with what was going on in my home and with being a struggling um, gay kid, you know, and not having an outlet that where anyone looked like me. So I just really, dove into fantasy and that fantasy led me to New York which at you know at 18 when I graduated high school I just felt like the fantasy was fashion and that and that was something that embraced me wholeheartedly and I looked the part and I had beginner's luck in some ways you know like if you can look and act a certain way in fashion you get ahead more than others it's it's really not necessarily right but I'd certainly rode the wave of that privilege and Um, looking back on it, I think there were parts of me that were a little ungrateful. You know, I I felt so overworked and so tired and there were nights where I would sleep at the studios and I would be there for 24 hours and I would have racks thrown at me and like Devil Wears Prada is kind of a real, a real thing. And as much as I loved it, I just really felt like all of my creative energy was being poured into creating something that is fantasy. And then as I got more real in my life and as I got closer to who I really am and I, as I got comfortable talking about what is real, I started to really feel like the fantasy was doing me a disservice. And ultimately that led me to realizing that most of my creative energy is put into images and people where the public who's receiving that creativity is I'm not able to feel their appreciation of it because it goes into a magazine and goes to someone's home and then they they might or might not enjoy it, but I have no connection to that feeling that they get. Whereas when I help people in my coaching practice and, and with therapy, there's a real direct correlation between them feeling better and me feeling like I was able to be of service to this person. That is so much more sustaining to me than creating pictures of beautiful women just to make myself feel like I created a picture of a beautiful woman. So now I get to in really enjoy my styling career and I really get to take the jobs that I feel are, are right for me. And I get to have my, my coaching practice, which gives me the fulfillment. And now the pressure is off to make fashion everything, you know? So that was that, that sort of fantasy to reality place in me is really what got me to look at going back to school. And also I have to say that I was listening to like an Oprah super soul podcast And she was on with someone who said, and this is obviously common sense, but you know, you hear things at times and it just hits you. The guy was on and he said, look, you can be the most famous architect in the world and you can be incredible at your craft. You can be a great architect. And if you are not passionate about architecting, there is not a single project that will come along that will make you feel like you've arrived or make you feel successful. 
And that just hit me at my core because I realized I'm really good at styling. I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of amazing opportunities, but I'm not passionate about this anymore. I've got to move on because there isn't a cover or a celebrity that's going to make me feel like I've arrived. And I kept waiting for that that one celebrity that was big enough or that one cover that was great enough where I would feel proud and like I'd arrived. And that day was just never going to come in this in that current you know, in the way that that works. I think that's a really good lesson for people in that even something that you were really excited about and that, that did give you that fulfillment, mm-hmm. that you change, you grow as a person and that might not always be the same thing. And, and like you said, and with that example, no matter how good you are at that thing, if it's not filling you up, if, if you're not feeling fulfilled, then, you know, maybe exploring other opportunities. Um, would you say there's lots of skills or things that you've learned from being a stylist that have informed your coaching and, and the way that you work with people and the, the types of, I guess, um, issues is the word that came to mind, but I'm not sure if that's the right word. The, the, the things that people are struggling with maybe when they, they come and work with you. Yeah. You know, I'm realizing that no matter how much money you have, no matter how incredible you look, no matter what dress you're wearing, no matter who's on your arm, I've seen the heights of fame and money and glamour and everything that people think is going to make them happy. And I've realized that we're all at the end of the day, the same. And I, you know, before that celebrity or before that model goes out on stage or onto the set, they're the same person like you and I sitting at home with the same dilemmas of taking care of their children, of paying their bills. And it's a different level. And people can say, well, they're, de- they're dealt with privilege and that's very that's a different thing than my struggle. And certainly there is a difference. But at our core, we are all, we are all so much more alike than we are different. And it's almost a relief because if you work your whole life for this place that you think you'll arrive that makes you feel successful and happy and you end up an old person and you've, and you've achieved it and it doesn't fill you up, then what? You know, like I, I feel like it's part of my mission is to help people realize that they can have those things now without having to actually have those things. And so you can identify the feelings. What would fame, what do I think fame would bring me? What do I think money would bring me? What do I think a certain level of success would bring me? And by getting really quiet and clear on that, we can identify what those things are to actually go out and get them now from the place we're in now. And I, as my career evolved, I started doing more personal styling with CEOs and big movie studio executives who wanted their closets redone and who wanted me to help them dress for their week. And there's something really vulnerable that happens inside of a woman's closet while they're getting ready. There's a, there's an intimacy and a vulnerability where you hear more than you would out in the world. You are exposed physically and also you become emotionally exposed. And I just realized many people had said to me along the way, you're really more of my therapist than my stylist. And that gave me the confidence and the courage to go back to school and to really help people because that was what I was more excited about than the Gucci dress. You know, like you can put on the Gucci dress all day long and like your husband's still cheating on you and you can feel better about yourself for a minute, but it's never going to get you to a place where you're dealing with a thing that's really bothering you. So that is what I was interested in doing. And I think it was a little bit like Splenda. Like if you just had the real sugar, you'd feel satiated, but we use like the, the, the fake sugar and we just need more and more and more because we're never really scratching the itch. And so I would leave clients house feeling like, God, I really wish I could have, you know, gotten a little deeper with her on that thing and helped her, but it's not really my place. It's not my role. And so school has really allowed me to feel like I can professionally go there with people. And what do you, you know, with these um, massively successful people that, that you're working with and I think, and I, um, don't feel particularly glamorous ever or, or successful to be honest so I think for, for people that are listening who are maybe looking at these these amazingly glamorous people and and I think sometimes we fall into that comparison thing or we think like they've got everything their life's amazing they never have any mm. worries and uh, I'm pretty sure that that is not true that everyone has concerns but is that something that was often voiced to people you know these insecurities and these people who work from the outside look like they've got everything. But. Yeah, I remember working with, actually, no, this wasn't a client of mine. This was just somebody I was out at a cafe with. And she, this woman walked in, she had on like a hat and sort of a wild outfit. And 
the woman that I was with said, God, I really wish I had the confidence to wear what she's wearing. I really wish I had the confidence to walk in and just own the room and, and dress like that. And she was in, you know, jeans and a t-shirt and, and she just felt like, God, I don't have, I wish I had the confidence for that. And I said to her, you have no idea what that girl is going through. You have no idea why that woman is dressed that way. She could be mentally ill dressed like that. I mean, she, or she could just desperately need attention or she might be confident. We really don't know, but we're, what, what that spoke to in me and what I shared with her is you've said the word confidence three times. It sounds to me like you crave confidence because you're projecting what you'd like onto this woman and saying what this woman is based on how she looks. You know, another person in that room might've thought this woman looked like a kook. So it's all your perception. So if we can slow it down and take it away from the other person and say, I'm really clearly craving confidence. How do we get that now? And that's what I, that's where I like to help people and step in is, is like, getting really mindful and conscious about those things so that you can create an action plan for getting them now without feeling like you need to go buy a crazy outfit or change who you are. Or, you know, to me, there's something more confident about jeans and a t-shirt than getting all dressed up because it's all a personal choice. It's not my business how people dress. In fact, I have no rules for how people should dress. And I think as a stylist, people look to me for rules. I have no rules. As long as you're dressing for what you're trying to say to the world and you're happy with it, that's what's, that's what's important. I think there's something about that being comfortable in your skin as well. And that, you know, the, the people who are possibly the most com- confident, they're just comfortable. They're just being authentic. And, and I know that's a word that's thrown around, <laughs> thrown around so much now about you know, being authentic, but that, that kind of, yeah, being, being comfortable. And um, there's something I'm, I don't want to quote you to you, but I'm going to. <laughs> what you mentioned about the, the gap between how we present and who we are inside. And that can often be really wide and feel really uncomfortable because we have this image of how we want to be. And that's what we're trying to present, but we just don't feel it. And uh, I wonder if you have any advice for anyone who hearing that thinks, oh, that's me, <laughs> about how we can start to bridge that gap maybe. Yeah, I think that that gap is neuroses and that gap is unhappiness and that gap is depression. And, you know, it's a little bit like ignorance is bliss. If you don't know what you're lacking or you don't know who you, where you're going or what you want to do, you, you, you typically sometimes feel fine. You, you don't realize there's a gap. But the more we learn about ourselves and the more we become awake, the more there's like, time that has to elapse and behavior that has to change in order for us to get caught up with what we know. So oftentimes, like I deal with a lot of 20 somethings who actually come to the table now with a lot of reading done because you have access to everything. So they come to the table with like all these philosophies and beliefs, but they're 23 years old and they, they haven't lived long enough to behaviorally experience what they're, what they know intellectually. So the gap between what they know and how they're acting is wide and that becomes guilt that becomes i'm not working hard enough that becomes perfectionism that becomes unhappiness with where you are and so it's about kind of minimizing that gap by one like letting go of ideals a little bit and just like being kind to yourself and then also creating an action plan for some behavioral changes so you're you're moving towards the person you want to be i think a great place to start is your bank statements if you are someone who believes in supporting small businesses and you're going over, that's your, that's your firmly held belief. And you go on Instagram and you talk about how important it is to support small businesses. And then you look at your bank statement and all of the businesses you support are like Walmart and and these big companies. Well, then there's a disconnect in your values and you're only giving lip service to the thing you care about behaviorally. You're not. And that's a problem that becomes a gap. And so if we can use things like our bank statements or our even our wardrobe, that's one thing I love to work with um, with people. If we can work with these things as tools for assessment, we can get really clear on who we are and what we're trying to say and then get really clear on our behavior and make sure that they are aligned. I guess that comes back to that meeting people where they are and, and looking at what is actually happening. What are you saying are your values? And that, that realism and really, I just guess coming kind of face to face with what they're actually doing and exploring it and being more mindful of it so that they yeah can make more of those choices that are in, aligned with 
what they say their values are. Although I am I am intrigued as to what my wardrobe would <laughs> say about me and my values from that. So can I take you through an example of, of how that works? Oh, I'd love. Yes. So I have a client who this was long ago. She's no longer my client and we won't use names because everything is confidential. But it's a great example, which is that this woman had two kids. She had a husband. She felt unhappy with how she looked. She felt overworked and tired as many mothers do. And we were talking about her personal style and her and her closet. And I said, what are the objects, what are the items in your closet that you are clinging to the most? Are, is there anything in your closet you're not getting rid of because you just feel like I'm saving that for that day when you know, I might wear it again or it reminds me of a time? And she had these party dresses in her closet. And I said, well, what is it about these party dresses that you, why do you hang on to them? And she's like, well, I don't know. I just, I'm going to, I hope to get back there. And I'm, I said, what do those dresses feel like to you? Who were you when you wore those dresses? And she was like, well, I was 10 pounds lighter. And I was like, I felt really sexy to my husband. And this was like before we had our kids and I, we were going out dancing and I just felt really confident in them and I, people would check me out. And it's like, okay, so those dresses represent what I'm hearing is those dresses represent someone who felt sexy, felt confident, felt rested. So those are three great places to start. And those dresses have pointed to you areas of your life that you'd like to improve. And they're just dresses. So you can walk by the dresses and you can look at them and get nostalgic and wish you were 10 pounds lighter and deny who you are now. And you can cling to the dress and never get rid of it for the hope in one day. Or you could get clear on those values and then work for them now. So how do I feel sexy now? How do I feel more rested now? How do I feel more confident now? And that might be like creating date night plans. That might be incorporating more time at the gym because what we do, it's a little bit like saying, yeah, I do yoga, but I haven't done yoga in six months. If we're not really clear on the fact that we're not actually doing it, then there's no way we can get better at it or grow because we're, we're in a little state of denial. So I often see, especially with weight and, and self-image, that if you're hanging on to dresses that no longer fit you in the hopes that one day they'll fit you, you're really telling yourself, I don't like who you are now. In the future, I'll be better. And it, it becomes a self-perpetuating cycle where you never get out of it because you feel so bad about yourself because every time you walk by that dress, you, it's like shame. So I really love objects because they really do speak to our values and what we, what we believe we should be. So ultimately, this client created mm -hmm. some ways in which she could feel sexier with her husband and create, carve out time for the two of them and, and, and felt better and was able to let go of the dresses. Now, this is not about getting rid of it because now you know something and you have to get rid of your stuff. This is not Marie Kondo about whether it brings you joy or not. I don't care if it brings you joy because there are so many things that bring us joy that we don't need to own. You know, I care about what it says about who you are, if it's still serving you or not, and how you can go out and get those things for yourself. And, you know, you'll find you want to get rid of the dresses once you've gotten those values for yourself, once you've incorporated them. In my experience, that's been what most people do. I love that example. And I think it's a really practical one that, that people could apply, whether it's their wardrobe or, or some other thing that they hold on to for whatever reason to explore those reasons and, and the values. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I'm definitely, I've got a lot of clothes I'm holding on to. <laughs> so I definitely will be uh, trying that out myself as well. Yeah. I think beginners just ask yourself, what is this object? What is this object saying about me? And, and how old does this object feel? How old, what, what memory does this object conjure? And getting clear on how you felt during that memory and getting clear on whether you still feel that way or not. And that can take some time and some awareness and some help. And these are, these are emotion, objects are very emotional things. It's not always easy to see, but in my experience, if you can talk it out with someone, you can unlock what you're really after. Yeah. Maybe it's something, you know, if you're feeling inspired to go through your wardrobe, maybe with a friend or someone that you can have that conversation with. I have a, a friend who, whenever I say I'm going to have a declutter, she's um <laughs> she can be the kind of firm uh friend like do you really <laughs> do you really need this and and because like you said mm -hmm. it's really emotional and um we have these attachments mm -hmm. to to things because quite often those memories or those 
stories that are tied up with them. Yeah. And if we don't, if we don't get rid of things consciously, we're just going to fill it back up again. Mm -hmm. You know, if we get into that mode where we're like, I'm so sick of all my clutter, I'm going to just throw everything out. Okay. Well, probably five years from now, it's all back because you didn't really address why you're clinging to these things, you know? And I find it particularly interesting when objects represent relationships with people. Like, mm -hmm. well, I can't get rid of that because my mom gave it to me. It's like, well, call your mom. Mm -hmm. You know, like pick up the phone and call your mom. It sounds like you're nostalgic for a relationship with your mother when you could pick up the phone and schedule like biweekly calls with her so you felt like a better son or daughter and felt more connected to your mother. And then that object doesn't really matter because you feel confident that you have a solid relationship with your mother and you're not having to tell yourself that that, you know, that memory box is your mother or that that pair of that sweater, your mom, it's like people would rather wear the sweater in front of the person that gave it to them, even though they hate it because I'd rather not have the conversation. Like I appreciate the sweater so much, but I, it doesn't, it's not really my style. And I'd like to give it to someone who would really wear it and appreciate it. Like that, those are the conversations that we should be having mm -hmm. with people we love because people we love understand. And it gives them an opportunity to really understand the reason why they gave it to us in the first place. Cause if they're offended, you don't like it and they didn't give it to you out of selflessness. They gave it to you to like, you know, feel good about themselves. Mm. I wonder how many of our um, decisions are uh, on that basis of <laughs> trying to make us feel better mm. about ourselves. It's funny you say that because I think every decision we make, and I and I challenge anyone to try to find one that isn't, every decision we make is an attempt to get comfortable, mm. if you think about it. I mean, every decision we make is is about seeking some sort of relief or comfort. So we wake up we get coffee, like everything is sort of motivated by the next feeling of comfort. Yeah. And I suppose we, we avoid those uncomfortable conversations. Mm -hmm. So in, in your example, the, the thing that you, you don't like having that conversation might be uncomfortable. So we would rather not have it and just be a, a little bit uncomfortable wearing something that we don't like or having to pretend rather than having that honest conversation mm -hmm. that's maybe more uncomfortable of actually this isn't really my style or I... Mm -hmm. It's, mm -hmm. it's like the, um, it, it's, it's seems really superficial, but it's so important because people really fall in love with someone that doesn't exist. If you're not truthful and you present, I mean, I'm from the South. So the stereotype of the South is everyone is just so lovely and sweet. And then behind your back, they talk shit, you know, but the truth is that if you don't present who you really are, then people really do fall in love with someone that doesn't exist. And then when you, you can't keep that up forever. So then at some point you start becoming who you really are and people are like, wow, you really changed. And it's like, mm, I'm, I've just gone back to who I really am. And it's clear to me that you don't really like who I really am and that this it's uncomfortable that I'm changing. I should have maybe started out being a little more truthful. Small ways in which we do that would be like, I constantly give you the booth that faces, the side of the booth that faces out. And I, and I constantly face the wall. And then over time, I'm resentful. You don't return the favor. You know, and then we have this like really silly resentment that gets bigger and it's all about how I'm selfless and you're selfish. I think as well, if we don't talk about these things, like we could be doing something that to us we're seeing as being selfless and we're doing this thing for the other person. They, one, might not even notice or care. Two, they might just be tolerating what we're doing. But it's just what we're telling ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, that Booth example is one that's dear to me because I, I've done that with friends. And I have expected the return of the favor. And like in some, in some ways over time, I, I have told myself that I'm just like this great friend and really selfless. And it's actually, when you get really subtle about intentions, it's really about needing the other person to see you as a good person or as a great friend or as selfless or as, and like the truth would be that I want to face out, you know, it would be better if you were just honest that, you always want the booth and you're a selfish friend. At least the person you're with could decide if they want to have a friendship with someone who's like that or not. You know, at least the truth would be the truth. And that for me is, is just so powerful because you will find people that partner with you that work if you just own who you are. It just made me think of, um, I went traveling with a dear friend of mine for four months and I'm... <laughs> 
I have social anxiety sometimes. And when people are in my personal space, it, that makes me anxious, but she's very aware of this. So when we're traveling and it's, I, I, you know, I can sit next to a person I don't know, I can deal with it, but because it's out in the open, there's not any of that resentment. It's that, and we were both mindful of each other's own little quirks, if you like, and, and the things that we found challenging. Mm-hmm. And actually it's, yeah, when, when you're just open about this is what I need or this is what I prefer, it's so much easier. It really is. I, I think the greatest thing is finding people whose quirks match your quirks. And I think we are so busy, myself included, can be so busy, caught up in trying to be the right person. And social media is so toxic for showing us who we are supposed to be. And we just forget that like there is a choice to all of these decisions. And I think if there's a, a silver lining to COVID and the stay at home, it would be the slowing down enough to see that there's a choice in all of it. And maybe being a little slower allows me to hear myself a little louder. And maybe for some who've not had a chance to do that, it brings up a lot of anxiety and they can't wait to go back to the way things were. But for many people I've spoken to, it's actually been a great reset. And, you know, many people have found out their hair looks better longer anyway. <laughs> so interesting i was on a, a zoom the other day and people mm-hmm. were just talking about their hair and, and needing to cut it and <laughs> just i just been tying my back in a plait which uh, to be honest a lot of during lockdown my style lots of things haven't changed which <laughs> um but i i definitely agree i know i've spoken to a lot of people who've seen it as this mm-hmm. a bit of a pause and a chance to regroup and think about what is really important and i guess in a way it's similar to as you were saying with the the values of the things that we have and how they're related, thinking about how we're spending our time. And I always go to this place for a meal or I always go to that shop on that day. What, what is the value behind it? And are we just doing it because it's a habit or is it because it's actually part of who we are or really important to us? That's exactly, that's been my experience too, just from place to place to place to place to place before this. And then not having that ability has just been so eye-opening because it's allowed me to realize I don't want to be doing that. And, you know, I also think it's so interesting to realize that your money doesn't leave your account if you don't spend it. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you have nowhere to spend money, I think many people shop at inexpensive places because they think they're not spending money. Like the reason why the Zara's and the H&M's of the world work is because if you throw down 25 or $30 for something, you don't really think you're spending that much money. But if you do that all the time, it adds up to all your money. Mm-hmm. And then you have a million things that are crap and you have nothing of value that will last and you don't own a house and you have no savings and all of that happens before your eyes. And then you're like, oh my God, what have I been doing? Yeah, I mean, I've heard this described as underbuying something like that this Mm. idea that you I don't know you want this particular bag and you're like no I can't possibly spend that much on a bag so you buy a cheaper bag that's kind of like the bag but it's not the bag and then you're not satisfied so you get another bag that's kind of like the bag but not Uh, and I definitely have done this before and I love Doc Martin boots and I'm normally like too expensive Mm -hmm. and then I was like I'm gonna stop under buying and I'm gonna buy those boots (laughs) that I want um I did the same with Mm -hmm. a pair of wedges because it was like they are the wedges that I want they weren't ridiculously expensive, but more than I normally would spend. But I was like, well, yeah, I'll just get into this habit or this cycle of buying other things that are cheaper to try and match this idea that I have in my head. Whereas I could just invest in a quality piece that's going to last longer and then actually be a bit more satisfied because that's the thing that I really wanted. And you can wear it into the ground and replace it in a few years if you need to or resole it or you know mend it and i mean i think the greatest for the fashion industry anyway the greatest thing that will come of covid in my opinion will be essentialism and this idea that we shop less and we shop more thoughtfully and brands sell less and they can't produce as many things so we just everything becomes shrinks down to what is essential and i've been begging for that for forever. I mean, that that's something I'm a, such a minimalist. I have four pairs of shoes. I've had them for my like 10 years and, and I just wear a uniform almost. And it, it allows, it frees me up to have other decisions to, you know, I'm free to make other decisions. Decision fatigue mm-hmm. is so real. And like, if we spend the first half an hour of our mornings figuring out what to wear, it's over. I'm exhausted. 
I don't, I, I don't even, I, by the time I get to work, I'm like, I've already just spent half an hour making decisions. And that sounds dramatic and maybe it is, but I think a lot of, especially women walk into their closets in the morning and start the morning from a negative place because they don't like what they see in the mirror and they don't like what they own and they're very overwhelmed. But helping clients find their personal uniform is... I think one of the greatest things I do for people and with people because it just frees you up to live your life in other ways. And nobody notices, nobody cares. I used to wear the same thing every day. People would be like, you look great. I'm like, it's the same thing you complimented on Tuesday. And it's just interesting how if you stop buying trends and you stop buying these like statement things and you just start buying what's essential, you, you, you really can just shelf the topic and move on and just have a lot of other freedom for a lot of other things. And if you really love and enjoy dressing, then like, please keep buying and do your thing. It's not a judgment. It's just that for myself, keeping up with the Joneses and trying to figure out what to wear every morning, it's just, I do that for a living. I don't, I don't want to have to do that. And that's where it began for me. But I think a lot of people can relate to that feeling and they're not stylists. Mm. I think I've got a lot of clothes. Um, I wouldn't say I'm necessarily trend driven. It's just, I like this. So I'm going to have, I'm going to have it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I've definitely during lockdown, got a uniform, which is essentially kind of like harem pants or like, you know, really floaty casual stuff. It's been particularly hot as well in the UK. And so I've over the past 12 weeks, I've had about four or five, maybe a few more outfits just on rotation. So maybe, maybe going out of this, I will kind of condense down to a, a uniform. The Times was saying, the New York Times recently was saying that there will likely be a Pavlovian response mm-hmm. to how we dressed during quarantine and that the future after quarantine will not be what we wore during quarantine because it will it will conjure negative feelings of where we were. And that's been the case often for fashion like world war ii what we wore during world war ii took a 180 after the war was over because we didn't want to wear the same thing we wanted to wear something that ushered in a new world and that reminded us the possibility and so i think we'll see some of that as well but i think uniformity is something that people are afraid of because they're like well i don't want to dress like my the person next to me it's not about uniformity with others it's about a uniform for yourself and it's also interesting if you look at well, I don't want to dress like everybody else, but you're buying the top from Zara where they make a hundred thousand of them. So there are a hundred thousand other women wearing that top. So it's, you really have to think about what you're saying and what you intend, because I remember being at like century 21 when I was 18, 19 years old and, you know, for me, and I put on this crazy jacket and I was with my friend and and I, I was like, I love this jacket. It looks great. She's like, yeah, you're six feet tall and you're a teenager. Everything's going to look good. So the question is, does this piece say reflect who you are? And in that case, it's like, no, a big red puffer coat wasn't saying what I was trying to say to the world, which is I wanted to be about minimalism and I wanted to be about uniformity. So this novelty jacket didn't make sense for what I was trying to say. So I got to put it back on the rack and save the money. So if we get really spend less. Yeah. And I guess this, again, it ties back to what we were saying before about being really mindful and really getting to know yourself and your values. And then you're kind of designing or styling that life around you that reflects those values and you're just really living it. Exactly. Okay. So I have some set questions. I ask everyone that, that comes on. So it'd be great if we can do a kind of speed round through these. Let's do it. Yeah. The first one I ask everyone is, is what always boosts your mood? What brings you joy in your life? Music always boosts my mood. And I love taking long drives into the middle of nowhere. So nature and music. I I, I mean, there's nothing better than rolling down the windows with music, heading out into the middle of nowhere and just shutting out the world for a minute. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah. My second question is what makes life meaningful for you? I would say it's funny you use the word meaning, trying to figure things out, meaning making. And I'm constantly looking for meaning in things. And so I think what gives my life meaning is the ability to understand myself and where I'm coming from and help other people do that for themselves. And then at the end of the day, to put that down, to to live a life without needing to know the answer to everything. I think that this journey is something 
that we've been told there's a destination. If you just figure this thing out, you will be able to be happy or have successful relationships or those kinds of things. And so it's helping people find meaning in their lives and then also taking time for fun and just to set it down. That, that really gives my life meaning is, is really working with other people and helping them through this process that can be, that can be quite difficult, but very fulfilling. Absolutely. The, the kind of topic of the, the whole podcast overall that we always come back to is about mental health, mental well-being. And so I have two questions around this. Uh, so I normally ask them both and then quite often have to go back over. So I'm going to start separating them. That seems like a logical thing to do. So the first question is, what does mental wellness mean to you? Mental wellness is a journey. Like I was just saying, I really don't think it's a destination. I think that mental wellness, the, the word wellness to me feels like a, an arrival and a destination and a place. Um, it's kind of like mental maintenance in my in my experience i like to think about it more as that thing that never ends so that i'm not feeling let down by the fact that i'm not there yet so that to me is behavioral because i really don't think that we can think ourselves into right action i really think we have to take the action to change our thoughts they obviously work in tandem but if we know too much and we're just sitting around thinking about it and trying to figure it out in our heads oftentimes we will we will never get there and it, and we will not evolve as as much as we'd like i really think it requires something else some other something outside of ourselves so that we're not spinning ourselves crazy in our own heads you know we have to leave our heads every once in a while and go help someone else to have our own mental wellness uh, so then the second part of this question is about how you look after your own mental well-being. For myself, I work out four times a week. I take baths. I have really comfortable bedding. It's really important to me to have really comfortable bedding. Um, I talk to at least two or three people a day that are friends of mine that I know are on the same journey that can reflect what I'm going through or can help me through a situation. Um, and, and I want to just say that that is not always my partner. I think it's a lot of, we can oftentimes put the pressure on our partner to be that person for us. And I think that really erodes relationships. I really don't give my partner everything in terms of what's going on in my head. I give him very select information about what I'm going through after I've done a little bit of work on it for myself. So I'm not just having like I'm not vomiting on him, my stuff, because I mm -hmm. think that that puts such a stress on a relationship. Um, and those three people I talk to, two or three people I talk to every day are different than my therapist because I think it's important people seek outside unbiased help because, again, the weight that our problems or our issues or what we're struggling with, the weight that they put on our family members and friends is not always appropriate. And I learned that healthy relationships have to have boundaries and that just because someone will listen to our problems all the time doesn't mean that we need to give it to them all the time. And many of my friendships have been based in that kind of codependence and co-regulation. And as I've aged and moved along, you know, several people mm. have gone away and new ones have come because I realized a lot of my friendships were based on this like need to fix and help. And it's not a healthy friendship or family dynamic. So making sure I'm taking care of myself before I enter my friendships and relationships so I can show up for other people is super important to my, to my wellness. And that's something that we've mentioned before about this, this need to look after ourselves so that we can show up for other people because we, we can't really be there for them if we've got so much going on in our own minds and, and all of our own concerns. I think that's a really important reminder for people that you can be a better friend or partner when you are taking that time to to deal with your own stuff however that looks for you yeah and there's often something unfulfilled when we're in that space because you know if you're very imaginative and you're really narrative based if you're not finding a way to express that imagination and that narrative through writing or some sort of creative outlet it will turn on you and it will turn into you creating narratives and getting over imaginative about your problems and the people in your life and like all of these assets that we have are different for all of us and they turn into defects if we don't 
find a way to express them. So in my case, helping other people is something I was really passionate about. But until I found an appropriate place to do that, i.e. going back to school and then having a practice, I was pulling partners and boyfriends and friends in that I needed to fix and help and manage. And it was Mm -hmm. just like, I was craving the ability to help. So I was bringing people in that were wounded and trying to help them. And it's like, I don't want that in my bed. Mm -hmm. So we have to be really willing to honor the parts of ourselves that are true for us and then not eradicate them and say, I'm too imaginative and it's driving me crazy. It's like, go find a healthy outlet for it so that you can enjoy yourself and enjoy the parts of you that are imaginative so they won't turn on you to get you to listen to go do something about it. Amazing. Thank you for that. Uh, So my next question, I talk about about mindset a lot on the podcast as well. So I ask guests to try and describe their own mindset. Hmm. My mindset is definitely goal-oriented. Um, well, let's just say it this way. My, the, my, my mindset at factory setting is goal-oriented, success, perfection, hard on myself, controlling. Like those are, those are ways in which I think my head is naturally can be. And then the mindset I have to work towards are the opposites of those things. So being more accepting of things, not being permanent and perfect, being vulnerable and comfortable with things being always in in flux, Um, allowing people their process and their experience without condemning them. allowing for the process to be all right and not the destination. Like they're all very cliche things, but my, I I live in this sort of limbo between the two. And that's where the root of my neuroses is like knowing that I want it to be perfect and then being okay with it. Not that is, that is an uncomfortable place at times for me, but my mindset is very much goal driven. So like we were just saying, finding goals that are appropriate and maintain like achievable and and using my goal-driven nature in a way that's healthier so my mindset is changing and that's something that I'm I think is natural yeah I definitely agree so my next one and we, we like to give people practical tips and things that they can try out and we very much don't think there's a one-size-fits-all and I know that already there's some great tips and, and ideas that have come up from this but if you could leave listeners with between one and three tips of things that they can try out in their life or put in place they're going to have a massive impact what would you suggest they do? I would suggest that people listen to the little whispers that tell them what to do all day long so for example if you have that feeling when you walk by your kitchen sink of like, you should do the dishes, do the dishes because those little nods to our intuition, if we don't listen to them, we ultimately learn to not trust ourselves because we're, we're getting a natural call to action. When we say now do it later, now do it after I do this thing, then we're basically taking control of our time. We're denying our intuitive voice by saying like, you don't know what you're talking about. I have this other stuff I need to do. I'm going to go do that. So by denying that little bit of intuition, we end up down the road, not really being able to trust our gut because we keep denying it. So in order to, in order to strengthen the intuition and the gut muscle, we have to listen to all the little ways our life is asking us to do something, whether it's pick up that pile of clothes, whether it's hide the cords behind the TV that you've had hanging there that drive you nuts. Like they're little tangible things we can do all day long to get in touch with that voice inside of ourselves and to honor it. So that when we get to really tough decisions, we can listen and know what we're listening to. That's crucial. Number one, number two, I would say, yeah, so definitely the intuition one. I mean, that's just like, I have to live by that because that's crucial. Um, I would say, a to-do list is important for someone like me because not just because it's like, these are all the things I have to do today. And if I don't get them done, I'm in trouble. It's, it's not that I have to accomplish all of them, but actually at the end of each day, I like to go over what I did do well and what I did accomplish. So if I have a to-do list and I'm like, well, look at all the things I did today, my head can trick me into saying I didn't do much, but I can actually go back over this list and say like, oh no, I, I actually accomplished a lot today and I did it really well. And I also made time to go for a walk and to work out and, and to boost my, self-esteem in moments where I don't feel great through that list is, has been life-saving for me. And then I think 
making sure you have one person in your life that you are current with. So that would be number three, making sure that you have someone in your life that you're current with that knows what you're going through and that you're not keeping secrets from, especially when you're trying to make change, when you're trying to mm-hmm. maybe t- cut communication with an ex that takes you to a dark place or a family member is going through a rough time and really leaning on you and it's a lot for you, like getting sort of brutally honest with one other person is so important. So you're not carrying that alone because if you carry it alone, you'll start believing you are alone and then you really will be alone. It will eventually lead you to not reach out to anyone. So having that one person who checks in on you if they haven't heard from you for three days because you're so used to checking in with them on a more regular basis, I think is really important. And just, it can be one person. And again, I, I really recommend that it's not your partner and that it's not a family member. I love that idea of, yeah, having a person who's current with you. Yeah, I love that. One. Thank, thank you for, for those. And then my very last sure. question is how people can connect with you if they want to find out more about working with you or they want to find you online. Where can they find you? Sure. So I just relaunched my website, which is williamgraper.com. And I'm really excited for people to interact with it because I'm going to be mailing out tips for how to live, you know, every day uh, in the way that suits you. Um, And also you can reach out to me. We can work one-on-one via the internet in person when we get back to that. Um, But it's a great place to find resources and to get in touch with me directly if you're interested in working one-on-one. Awesome. And we can absolutely link in the show notes to your website so people can find it easily. Thank you. From there. Yeah. Thank you so much, William. I've really enjoyed talking to you and, and connecting with you and, and exploring yeah, all, of, all of this uh, this kind of stuff. And I definitely will be taking your tips on board and also reassessing my wardrobe. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> Thank you for so having much. me. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. So thank you to William for joining us for this episode. And uh, honestly, I haven't got around to (laughs) doing that sort of my wardrobe yet. But it is something that is in the works. And I actually recorded an interview, uh, which will probably be out in January, with Ingrid from Declutter Hub. Uh, So it's definitely something on my mind of having that bit of a declutter, but also really exploring my values and how my choices and objects I have Uh, represent or not those values Uh, so yeah thank you to William and we will be back on Monday with the lovely Visa who is a mindset and empowerment coach and mindset obviously is one of my buzzwords and at Psyche our kind of uh, I don't know mission statement our aim if you like is to inform inspire and empower so I'm really excited to share that conversation with you on Monday so I hope you have a good week please do rate review and share the podcast and I love hearing what you think of the show so do feel free to connect with me on Twitter Facebook or Instagram at Psyche Coaching P-S-Y-K-H-E Coaching on all of those so have a good week look after yourself and I will speak to you Monday